you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 4. It's very good to see everyone here this morning. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning as your people, God, thanking you for this time that we have together to worship. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the unity of the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that as I speak your word, Father, you would, by your spirit, move us to greater obedience, Father to understand your word more. I pray that you would open our eyes and open the eyes of our hearts, God, to know you more fully. I pray, Lord, that Christ would be exalted here today. I pray, Father, that you would move your people by your Holy Spirit to long for you more and more. Increasingly, Father, that the things of this world things that are passing away, God, will not captivate us so easily. But Lord, that we would long to know you. God, have mercy on us here today and speak to your people so that your name may be glorified, so that Christ may be exalted, and so that they may be edified. Amen. Uh, So, before we get into the text this morning, I want to kind of lay out the journey that I'm going to take us on, okay? Uh, My aim is to give us more joy and hope uh, in this coming Christmas or Advent season. Uh, When I started thinking about what to preach this morning, one of the things that came to my mind is that we are just beginning the holiday, the, the holiday season. Uh, Thanksgiving is uh, just uh, two weeks away, less than two weeks away, actually. Um, and Christmas is directly on its heels. Uh, the thought that kept flashing in my mind while deciding what to talk about today is that Christ is the light who has entered the world. Uh, he is the light that darkness cannot overcome. Uh, There's not a more fitting time to talk about this than the Christmas season. 
And this is uh, the opportunity that I have uh, to present a Christmas sermon uh, near Christmas time. And so here we are. Uh, the path I want to take us on this morning goes through a few different passages, and so we will jump around just a little. Uh, but our focus is going to be in Isaiah 9. Uh, first, we're going to look at the verses that I just read in Matthew, and we're going to talk about the context there. Uh, but this is going to help us discern the events that Isaiah is pointing to in Isaiah 9. Uh, also, in order to follow the passage uh, we'll look at in Isaiah, I need to give a context and a perspective from the book of Daniel. Okay? Um, we need what we need to understand about the Bible and specifically about biblical prophecy is that many prophecies in the scriptures overlap in a lot of ways. Okay? Uh, Amos 3.7 tells us, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And notice the plural, prophets, right? What God has to say about the coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God he revealed to his servants, the prophet. And we aren't going to look at these exhaustively this morning, but we are going to glean a few particular concepts from a small number of passages. Uh, first, first concept, Jesus was God's chosen servant sent to establish his kingdom. Uh, second, God told his people, when, when this kingdom would be established, okay? And last, God has made clear the nature of his kingdom. Or in other words, God has made plain uh, in his word what his kingdom would look like and how it would come about. And so to begin a few moments ago, I read from the Gospel of Matthew. And this was, like I said, Hold on, I need to adjust this microphone. Annoying me. Sorry. Uh, to begin a few moments ago, I read from the Gospel of Matthew. This was, like I said, to give us a context for understanding the passage that we're going to be looking at in Isaiah. Um, because until we get a few verses into that passage, it's not one that most people would just recognize right off the bat. Uh, Many times when preachers or teachers begin to go through texts in the prophets, we can immediately see that there are a myriad of different ways that people interpret prophecy. Um, and, and given that there are many passages in the prophets that can be difficult to understand, uh, when we have the opportunity to study when we have the opportunity to study a passage uh, in light of a more clear teaching, especially a teaching that's found in the New Testament, uh, we ought to take full advantage of it uh, because we can look and see what the clearer text says about the text that is less clear. Okay, uh, So the direct context of the verses that we read in Matthew 4 is that Jesus had just been baptized and subsequently was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And I can't I can't overstate the significance of these two events, okay? Uh, because these are two occurrences that help us to establish my first point, that Jesus is God's chosen servant to establish his kingdom. 
The baptism of Christ was, in one sense, an ordination of Jesus to begin his ministry. John had been baptizing for repentance of sins, and Jesus came to him in order to be baptized, but not because he had any sins to repent of. John the Baptist testifies in the Gospel of John that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And yet Jesus came to him at the Jordan River in order to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. When Jesus came up out of the water, the voice of the Father, speaking from the heavens, said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was a public testimony from God that Jesus was indeed his servant who has come to do his will. And we need, we need to catch the weight of this. Okay, we need to catch the weight of this moment because God doesn't just speak out audibly from the heavens on a whim. Okay, so we have to understand that, that the moments where God spoke from the heavens in the scripture are weighty moments. And so when Jesus was baptized and he comes up out of the water and you hear the voice from heaven going, this is my servant in whom I am well pleased. That's God plastering the neon sign going, ding, 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 this is the one, right? And Jesus here had also publicly identified with the sins of the very people he was sent to save and to minister to. Okay? So Jesus Jesus was identifying himself with the sinners. You catch that? People were coming to John to be baptized for the repentance of sins, and Jesus comes and says, baptize me. And John goes, uh, no. No? What? In fact, why don't you baptize me? Because that seems a little more right. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is good to be done because it fulfills all righteousness. In essence, uh, this is the way I could put it, right? In essence, Jesus was saying, I'm going to bear the sins of these people. I'm going to bear their sins. And so let me go down in the water with them. Let me identify with them. Immediately afterward, he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And there is a significant symbolism to the act of fasting 40 days. Uh, The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as a discipline from the Lord for their disobedience. And Jesus was an Israelite who disciplined his body for 40 days and was at no point ever disobedient to the Lord. Israel's trial in the wilderness was a time of suffering and hardship brought on by their sins. And Jesus' time in the wilderness was a time of preparation to begin his ministry. And that would result in the forgiveness of sins. Israel began their time in the wilderness as a result of giving in to temptation to call God a liar by doubting his promises. Jesus completed his time in the wilderness by overcoming the greatest time of temptation any man has ever faced because he believed the promise of God. 
Israel was promised a land if they would but obey. And yet they were prevented from entering into the land because of disobedience. And we see throughout the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, that Israel was disobedient to the point of being ejected from the land multiple times. Jesus, on the other hand, was promised the inheritance of the nations if he would obey. And as we will see, the nations are his. They are his. And so I, I need to address the temptations that he faced briefly because they're going to they're gonna help us see a point that I'm going to make in just a minute. Okay? Uh, Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread. Do you remember one of the complaints that Israel had early on in their journey in the wilderness? It was, uh, God, we're going to starve. And so God gave them manna from heaven, right? Jesus, uh, most likely suffering from a very real hunger, chose to trust God and reminded the devil that his food was the word of God, which is also something that he eventually told his disciples, right? Uh, my food is to do what the Father commands. <clears throat> then Satan tried to be a bit craftier. He knew Jesus trusted God's word, so he attempted to use that word to tempt Jesus into laying down his life and testing God, who did indeed promise to protect his people. Jesus' reply is interesting because when he speaks back to Satan, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? This verse in Deuteronomy 6.16 was in reference to when the Israelites were in the wilderness at a place that would be named Masa and Meribah. Because there they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Overcoming these two temptations proved, and this is the point that I was alluding to, okay? It proved that Jesus is the true Israel of God. He was obedient where the people in the wilderness had not been. Finally, Jesus was shown all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and was tempted to receive them by bowing down and worshiping Satan. The most, this is the most important one. Jesus, knowing that God would give him the nations as its inheritance, rebuked the serpent and affirmed he would worship God alone. Jesus is the obedient Israel. And after these events, we come to the text we started with Matthew 4, 12 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It says, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. And from that time on, right, at that time on, he began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rest of our time this morning, we'll be spent looking at this text, which is in Isaiah, and seeing what is meant by the people sitting in darkness saw a great light, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, turn with me. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What does it mean that the people walk in darkness? Matthew told us that the presence of Jesus in the land meant that the people there had seen the light. <laughs> Obviously, Jesus is the light. Darkness must therefore be the absence of Jesus. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. I know that we just arrived in Isaiah, but like I said at the very beginning, I have to quickly talk about Daniel for a specific context and perspective. And this is one of the places and ways that prophecy overlaps sometimes. Daniel will help broaden our perspective, and it also brings us to my second point. God has told us when his kingdom would be established. So Daniel chapter 2, and we're not going to read it. Daniel chapter 2 explains a dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He dreamt of a giant statue whose head was made of gold, and the chest made of silver, its stomach and thighs made of bronze, and the feet made partly of iron and partly of clay. Daniel gave the interpretation of the dream and said that each section of the statue represented uh, different kingdoms. The head represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The silver chest represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The bronze portion represented the Greek Empire. And the feet represented Rome. Now, the interpretation of these parts of the statues as the specific empires that I just mentioned is not directly in the text, okay? Uh, though in some of your Bibles, it might have those headings, right? It might say Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Um, <clears throat> the interpretation is, however, an extremely common and widely accepted interpretation, that it was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. At the end of the dream, a stone that had not been cut by human hands struck the feet of the statue, and the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the stone that became a mountain represented a kingdom that God would set up 
which will never be destroyed, which will not be left for another people, and which will crush and end all other kingdoms, but that itself would endure forever. And so now we return to the context of Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4, a land in darkness where Jesus was about to begin his ministry. At the time of Jesus' birth, Israel was part of the Roman Empire. The prophets of God had ceased to speak. God was silent. And shortly after Jesus was born, we're told in Luke of two people, Simeon and Anna, who, when he was presented at the temple, had been waiting for the Lord's salvation. Upon seeing Jesus, they praised God because the Savior had come. Until Jesus' birth, until the incarnation, Israel was indeed in darkness, without the voice of God, without a leader, without light. We continue on in Isaiah, verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Here we see a turn in the way that Isaiah is making his address. It would seem that he begins to address the light itself, saying, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. You shall break the yoke of their burdens and the staff on their shoulders. Now, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, you likely would have understood this verse to refer to the Messiah, which is correct. However, you also would have likely assumed that the, the Messiah was to be a warrior king one who would come and break the Roman oppression and give Jerusalem and the rest of Israel back to God's people. And so the fact that Jesus appeared and was not trying to foment some sort of political rebellion would have been a strange occurrence, given that he was preaching that the kingdom of God, the kingdom spoken of in Isaiah, that was, or excuse me, in Daniel, that was to come in the time of the fourth kingdom, which was Rome, had come. Right? It would have been strange for a Jew to listen to Jesus saying, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold, the kingdom of God has come. And yet he's not actively saying, let's organize against the Romans. That would have seemed strange. <clears throat> the expectation for the Messiah is that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron, that he would set the captives free, and that he would usher in peace that would last. And here's the thing. He would. He would. But how the Jews understood that and how God meant it when he spoke through the prophets were two different things altogether. The burden that Jesus spoke of when he ministered on the earth was the burden of a righteousness that is by the law. 
Jesus spoke of the righteousness that is by faith. He taught that if one believed the testimony from God, that he, Christ, was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, and that if one had faith in him, his sins would be forgiven. Matthew uh, chapter 12, verses 27 through 30. Uh, illustrate this. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son will reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 6, verses 27 to 29 say, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And Jesus had also many times rebuked the Jewish leaders for placing burdens upon the people that they could not bear. So if you'll turn with me, and this will be the longest passage we read this morning. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 1. And I just want to... I debated on whether or not to include this whole passage and to read it. But I want you to catch the weight of what this burden is. I want you to see what Jesus was coming to set the people free, free from. Right, what he actually taught in his ministry that he was setting people free from. Okay? So, Matthew chapter 23, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the, use, the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear Beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Notice the last two verses there. Jesus, as judge, was condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for all of the bloodshed from Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, and said that all of the guilt, all of that guilt, would fall upon that generation. Those leaders who would oppress the people with false teaching and hypocrisy would be dealt with, and the weight of the guilt of the burden of sin would be lifted from all those who trust in Jesus. Back to Isaiah. Verse 5. For every boot 
of the booted warrior in the battle, tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now we see Isaiah take another small turn. He's spoken of the burden being lifted off the shoulders of the people of God. And now he begins, he begins to speak of the peace that would result from this burden being uh, lifted off the shoulders of the people of God. I want us to turn a few pages back now and look at Isaiah chapter 2, um, where Isaiah describes in slightly greater detail uh, what he described in, in chapter 9, verse 5. <clears throat> And we can begin to see where what I talked about from Daniel is relevant to this text. Okay? So, Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2, it says, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord. There it is. Daniel. The mountain. The rock that strikes the Roman Empire and becomes a mountain. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established will be established as chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may, we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. <clears throat> it says the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and all the nations would stream to it. He says that the law will go forth from Zion and that God will judge between the nations. He says that they will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks and that nation will no longer lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The peace that would be brought in the coming of the kingdom of God is a peace that will last. So how do we reconcile, how do we reconcile that the light came to the people of Israel when Jesus came into the world? How do we reconcile that, that it was the right time for the kingdom of God to come? And that from that point until today, we have not seen this everlasting peace that God promised through his prophets. How do we reconcile this? The prophet said the light would come, and so he came. <clears throat> Jesus is the Messiah. He is the light. He is the Savior of the world. Matthew 28 says that he has inherited the nations. So how are we to understand this promise of peace? God said the light would come. God said that the kingdom would be established during the Roman Empire. How are we supposed to understand the peace that's promised alongside of that? 
And so this brings us to my third point. God has made clear the nature of this kingdom. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And here is where everyone goes, Hey, I know this verse. This is the Christmas verse. Jesus is the child born to us, the son that's given. The government will rest on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isn't that beautiful? How familiar are you all with the very next verse? The very next verse shows us how we reconcile the kingdom that has come with its king and how we have not yet seen the peace that lasts forever. It is not, it is not because the peace is only a symbolic peace. It is not because the kingdom is only a spiritual kingdom. No. Scripture says that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It is not because the kingdom hasn't really come. And this is one, this is one that I've heard so, so often, so often, right? Because what we do, what we do so often is we, we look at this verse, right? We look at this set of verses and we say, yeah, this is probably talking about something in the future, right? Like I've got close friends that that's the way they think about this. They think about this verse and they say, so the kingdom came, but it didn't really come. Like Jesus is king. He's, you know, he's king. But he's not really king. It's because, as Christ told Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. In other words, the kingdom of God does not grow in the same way as the kingdoms of men. God's kingdom is not won by the edge of the sword. Jesus, our king, told us when he ascended into heaven to make disciples of all the nations and to teach them everything that he had commanded and that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. And we all hopefully would agree that verse 6 is most certainly speaking of Jesus, right? We hopefully would all agree that that Jesus is the one that's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's no chance in any way that it could be talking about someone else. And it says something that I bet some of you have never really thought about, even though you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas movie a hundred times, right? And you've seen the verse on every other Christmas card you've ever gotten in the mail, right? It says that the government would be upon his shoulders. Think about it. Think about it, okay? 
If you would call Jesus wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, would you not also say that the government will rest upon his shoulders? Who is it that appoints kings? God. Who is it that places government, uh, governors and prime ministers in power? God. Who is it that commands all the governments of this world? God. And what is his name? Jesus. Jesus. Verse 7 goes on to tell us that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. What does this mean? Well, quite plainly, it means that his government and peace will never cease to increase. Jesus likened this in the parables to the small amount of leaven in a batch of flour that slowly leavens the entire batch, or the mustard seed that slowly becomes the tallest tree in the garden where birds can come and build their nests. It says that Jesus will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. And lastly, it tells us that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, will accomplish this. So what? So what? What does all of this mean for us this morning? Today. In considering the Christmas season, uh, there are all sorts of emotions and attitudes that come up in different people, right? Uh, some people start decorating and singing Christmas songs uh, like immediately after Halloween. Okay? Other people uh, create plots on how to murder those people, right? <laughs> For some, Christmas is a time of childhood nostalgia, where every smell and every tree and every colored light display brings back fond memories. For yet others, uh, Christmas is a time that reminds them of painful losses or difficult circumstances in the past. There are folks who are able to visit everyone in their family and enjoy every gathering and every feast, and every carefully, carefully wrapped present, right? Uh, and yet there are other folks who, who can't see their loved ones during the holidays because of separation uh, by miles or because of work. But all of this, all of what I just said, has very little to do with how we ought to think about Christmas. What I want you to see this morning, what I want you to see is that Jesus is king. That he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I want you to see that our king is a good king. I want you to see that our king is a faithful king. I want you to see that King Jesus will bring to fruition every promise of God for this world. 
And I want you to see that King Jesus sits on his throne and that there is nothing, nothing that is too powerful for him. There is nothing too great for him. There is no ruler, no tyrant, no government, no political idea, and no enemy of God who can ever stand against our king. There is no authority higher than his authority. There is no glory greater than his glory. There is no justice greater than his justice. There is no dominion greater than his dominion. There is no law greater than his law, and there is no mercy greater than his mercy. There is no grace greater than his grace. And there is no love greater than his love. There is none above, beyond, or higher than our king. What man is there? What man is there who could stand against the Lord and not be melted like a wax figurine? What army is there who could wage war against the king of kings? What force of nature is there that could resist King Jesus and not obey his command to be still? There is none. There is none. Christmas is a time that we've set aside to celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. Born of a virgin, laid in a manger, the low-born king of glory. But that's just it, isn't it? He is our king. And he came into this world to correct everything that has been tainted and stained by the sin of man. Like my favorite Christmas hymn says, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. <clears throat> Every evil thing that has come about because sin has come into this world will be made right. Christ. He is the fulfillment of every good promise of God, and he cannot fail. Revelation tells us of a hymn that heaven sang to Christ, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It says that Jesus was worthy to take authority over the world because he was slain, and by his blood he purchased men from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Where ancient Israel failed to obey God, Jesus failed not to obey God. Where we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Jesus never sinned and was given the name that is above every name. The Christmas season ought to be a wonderful season of celebration because we celebrate the coming of our low-born king who is now exalted above every king. He is the light that darkness cannot overcome. Let's pray. Almighty God,
Help us, Lord. Help us to see your glory. Help us, Father, to acknowledge that Christ is King. It's not just some pithy saying. That Jesus rules the nations. That he's the king of Christians. That he's the king of atheists. God, that he's the king of everything. Help us to see, Father, that your good promises, Lord of everlasting peace, can't fail. Help us, God, to trust in your word instead of the news. And help us to serve. To serve this great king, in a worthy manner. Oh God, help us. Amen.